Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley welcoming you to episode 191 of the Criterion Cast. This is one of our main episodes where we just take a look at one film in the Criterion Collection. And tonight with me, as usual, for these main episodes and most recent, uh, you know, the most recent evolution of this ongoing series, is Scott Nye. Hello, Scott. How are you tonight? A little sleepy, but waking up every second. That's right. I'm trying to stretch those <laughs> limbs and, and get into it there. And also Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Nice to talk to you again. Hey, you, both of you as well. I love these. Yes. Good yeah. to go. Yes, very good. Well, we are we are here to observe the President's Day holidays in the month of February. Uh, and we're going to look at a recent release uh, or a re-release, a reissue of Young Mr. Lincoln, 1939, legendary John Ford film starring Henry Fonda. A vintage slice of Americana at a time when maybe a few of us are feeling a little bit cynical or jaded or a little bit bewildered about what is this country all about and where are we heading anyways. Nothing like a good old nostalgic throwback to back when life was simple and men spoke straight from the, the from the heart when they announced their convictions and as you as you'll find out in this film you know there was a little bit of shenanigans and corruption going on back then too but it just seemed like the a smart word and a little uh, folksy anecdote was all it took to turn people's minds around and let justice be served so <laughs> we're going to look on the the little brighter <laughs> and optimistic side of things as we uh, we explore You're sounding cynical even right there well <laughs> i know i know i i'm i'm going to just push right on through <laughs> and try to reclaim that uh, faith in the uh, in the, the best of america and what it represents uh, so john ford's young mr lincoln 1939 i think he had a few other significant titles that came out that year. Uh, so we're just going to talk a little bit about this new Criterion release. And uh, uh, how about Trevor? Why don't I kind of give you a shot to tell us a little bit about your response to this film? Uh, I have seen this before. I did blog about it in my uh, old Criterion Reflections blog when I was running through the sequence of films. Really enjoyed it. But uh, Trevor, what's your take on this one? And then we'll give us kind of a chance to weigh in. Well, I, ha- I have kind of a complicated take with it because it is... For for lack of a better word, it reminds me of some really great Disney cartoons. Um, you know, like the Ben Franklin cartoon. You know, where the mouse is the hero. <laughs> you know, things like that. Yeah, there's me, just right? this Ben and me. Yeah, you know, there's a sense of boy, I could show this to my kids and really show them what America never was. You know, this kind of mythical, idealized path, but that still feels really good and still affects me. And so that's where I'm complicated on this one is I really, really, really like this movie. And I think there's a lot going for it. Um, at the same time, I think it's ripe for for some cynicism. And I, I hope that we get into that a little sure. bit today because it's it's fairly, it, you know, it, it certainly puts Lincoln apart from everybody. And you're right, he just needs a, a nice, clever uh, word and he usually has the better of everybody. He's He's in control through the entire movie, just kind of moving on a different plane than everybody else to his ultimate destiny as he's as he's growing up. But, you know, it still affects me. It still makes me remember those good old days of my own youth that, you know, are now enshrined in some idealized past that isn't what it used to be, or, you know, isn't actually what it was, but that I still remember very fondly. Fondly, yes, and and then Henry Fonda, I guess, a little play on words there, probably not intentional on your part, but it not kinda, intentional. Kinda Thank you, me. but yeah, but but yeah, and he is a very key component to this film. But uh, before we start picking it apart, Scott, what's your opening uh, salvo here? Yeah, uh, this was a film I first saw in I think two thousand nine when I was just uh, just graduated college and kind of working a part-time job. I had a lot of time on my hands just blowing through a few movies every day. And this was somehow wandered into the stack. And I, I did not get it at first. It was very much like, what is this golly gee business? It's very, <laughs> yep. I mean, I even then I liked earnestness in movies, but this is like, it's something else when you get to like Lincoln splitting the rails and judging the pie contest and winning the cases. And he just seems to do everything so perfectly and you know as these things tend to go some time passes i watch a few more john ford movies uh but i think what really unlocked 
this film is this phrase that kind of gets passed around uh, cinephile circles about a lot of directors in general, but I seem to hear it most frequently with Ford in particular that he's a sort of poet, uh, the poet with the image. Um, and I think his own sort of sort of Americana poetry is really at its peak in Young Mr. Lincoln. It's a very productive period for Ford and when he seemed to believe uh, most strongly in a set of uh, almost socialist ideals that kind of were at their most uh, aggressive in The Grapes of Wrath, which he'd make the next year. Um, and this sort of tilts towards that, you know, I think a lot of the things he's idealizing are very um, kind of uh, nascent American ideals that never really found their fruition, but which are embodied quite well in uh, our national conception of Abraham Lincoln and certainly in uh, Henry Fonda's, uh, Nord Henry Fonda noted leftist himself, uh, his portrait of Lincoln. Um, and so even if I wasn't particularly inclined to agree with its political slant, which I certainly am, uh, the sheer beauty of it, it though is really remarkable. Uh, I think every image, uh, you know, you get like kind of nature moving in the background, just the way Fonda stands and poses uh, against that nature in contrast to other characters and showing his evolution and how he becomes more assertive in those spaces, eventually kind of, uh, as Trevor said, kind of owning the courtroom, um, not only through what he says, but how he presents himself in saying it. It's a really uh, interesting portrait of kind of the evolution, kind of what it took to become the Abraham Lincoln we all know, even though at the beginning we can see some elements of that in place. But I, I think by the end when he puts on the stovetop hat and is walking the distance you know i think it's really earned uh that nod that ford's trying to carry off uh yeah i, I think it's a really remarkable film it really is and i think uh, as i want to do i like to put uh these older films in their historic context so let's kind of just kind of set the stage here 1939 uh he also did drums along the mohawk and stagecoach that same year is that am i correct in that you are yeah i was just there? looking that up yeah it's just that's an amazing trio now uh it's been a long time since i'm not sure i've ever even seen the full you know drums along the mohawk which if you want to do it criterion I'd, I'd certainly welcome that to to get the trifecta there but um you know that's about the um kind of the indian wars era right and and so we've kind of got these epical you know archetypal eras of american history uh this kind of uh, trilogy if you will of kind of vintage uh mythic american stories uh so we're at the end of the depression uh you know there are the the drum beats of war on the horizon and i think there is that you know to you know jump very quickly to the end even though we want to roll it back just as quickly uh you know as lincoln is facing the ominous uh you know, portents of the of a future strewn with conflict and and devastation. Uh, the United States and and people who I think were a little bit more politically attuned were recognizing that there's trouble on our own horizon as well. And so, a, a character like Abraham Lincoln uh, wasn't just this was not just a simply uh, a nostalgic exercise here. Uh, American society was going through its own incredible challenges you know the depression had been in full swing even though things maybe were getting a little bit better at that time uh, there's still just a ton of uncertainty uh, a ton of um, you know ominous uh, developments that uh, we're going to potentially make life very very difficult uh, for, for people and looking for leadership and looking for ideals looking for values that would would keep people strong and focused in the right place uh, despite the challenges uh, that that awaited them uh, I, I can see where um, this prospect of, of making a story about the shaping of Lincoln not so much a Civil War story but how did that man become this uh, legendary leader what did he do to deserve that big statue and that that big uh, monument right there on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Uh, so you, you do, you, you get some mythology here, you get some uh, larger-than-life stories. But what struck me is just kind of how 
you know, how kind of low-key and humble it is. I mean, it, it starts off with a few little character-building anecdotes and then pretty much turns into a sustained courtroom drama, uh, drama-slash-comedy. There's some pretty hilarious moments in this as well. But let's just talk about the earlier scenes, kind of the stage setting for the really young Mr. Lincoln. Uh, you know, how was, how was, how would, what do you guys think of his introduction? Uh, the, uh, the pompous politician kind of, you know, calling him up to give a little speech to the, the locals and toss his hat into the ring in the, the political sense of the word. I think it's a very effective way of setting it up. You know, you kind of get him at a very somewhat naive point. Uh, he, he himself is very, seems very earnest. Um, you know, at the end of that scene, when uh, he discovers that a family has not books to trade, you know, he's in awe of their very existence. And I mean, which is understandable. It seems kind of goofy. Book. I know wow. <laughs> it seems goofy now, but I mean, the rarity of literature in that time, uh, especially if you're living in a small town, I mean, it would be quite a find especially law books. Um, but you kind of get the all that stuff that's going to develop into leadership, all the ideals, um, a kind of basic way of relating to people. You know, Like you said, we have the pompous politician, then he just kind of shump, uh, shambles up. He's like, I'm plain old Abraham mm-hmm. Lincoln. My politics yeah, are simple. With those tall boots, yeah, his long legs, his boots, his kind of humble manner. Yeah, the politics are short and sweet. Yeah, like exactly. The old woman stands. <laughs> uh, it's all it's all a very good way of introducing what was appealing to people of the time about Lincoln, uh, which you know, as much as his politics might have been, even though he's a very divisive president uh, due to the split nature of society at the time. Uh, you know, what must have appealed to people was just his decency and good nature, which I think, uh, you know, charisma tends to be what sells most politicians. And while most politicians seem to overdo it in the way that the first guy in the scene does, I think people do connect to a sense of uh, some semblance of genuineness um, that Lincoln embodies uh, very naturally in Fonda's portrait. Yeah, except, and I, I agree with everything you said, but I, I also feel like it shows that Lincoln is smart enough to know that that's what he has to do and how he has to portray himself. Because as we go through the film, he's, he's very in touch with the crowd he's trying to win over and be a part of, even though he's apart from them through most of the film and kind of shown as, as, as an outsider, he still knows what they want to hear and how he has to sell it. I, I, I'm thinking of the, the time when they're trying to break into the jail to kind of do a lynch mob thing. And he says, you know, you, you guys, I, I'm a new lawyer. You don't want to take away some of my first clients, do you? You know, just kind of a, that, that's what's going to get them. If I appeal to their moral nature or, you know, even a fair trial, that's just not going to do it here. I've got to come at them as a as one of their own, as someone struggling. And then in the courtroom, he, he shows himself to be a fairly masterful rhetorician. And, you know, thinking back on that very simplistic speech and just the idea that, you know, yes, he is young, he is naive, but he's I think he's still kind of aware at that point that this is... This is a good way to to get some interest and to become a part of it, even if it doesn't win him this particular election. He's going to to use that humility to start earning hearts and and getting in there. Um, and I, I guess I don't mean to say that it was deliberate manipulation of his audience, because I do feel like it's sincere. But I just also think that he's, you know, even at that young age, he's very aware and and very much trying to to kind of be a humble part of the crowd, um, even though Ford shows him as something very much not in the crowd. Well, there's an essential truth about politics. If you're trying to win a popular vote, you got to know what your audience is looking for, what what's going to draw people to you, and whether that's a humble, old, honest Abe or politicians of a more <laughs> arrogant and, uh, you know, uh, kind of inflammatory sort, uh, politicians who are successful know how to read the crowd and they know how to appeal to that constituency that's going to get them the majority. And so, yeah, there are some, there is some commentary on society as well as what, what kind of these, these, uh, 
plain spoken uh, prairie folk uh, were looking for and, and who they could respect and, and look up to as a leader. So you're right. Lincoln had the, the he, he was a tall guy. He was a height, you know, he had the height, the, uh, the man in charge persona, but he didn't, he didn't revel in it. He didn't rub your face in how he's number one. In fact, he, he was very self-effacing and that seems to be somewhat historically accurate if you've read biographies and the way he presents himself. So I think you're definitely getting a character of the man. And I think Henry Fonda, again, knows how to kind of, you know, take that aw shucks mentality, but but make it, you know, genuine and heartfelt. And, and again, he, he becomes a very appealing character uh, because he has the smarts, but he's also got the humility and the wit and the common sense to think quickly on his feet even as he's challenged in a variety of you know pretty stressful situations. Well, and one thing I'd also like to point out, the first time mm-hmm. I watched this, I wondered if I would hate the movie in that first scene because it's if if you it, it takes a minute to build, to warm up to this tone and that oh, yeah. that music playing in the background yeah, the is really <laughs> it's very <laughs> over the top in a way that makes it think make, made me think boy this is going to be just one sentimental schmaltzy um, you know schmaltzy yeah that, right, right, yep right. uh movie but uh and and in, in a way it never gives up on on that oh it, it it's just always becomes, there i mean if, if right well, go ahead. If you're too if you're too cool for that kind of thing, you're probably not going to get in this movie. You know, if you're looking for something with a little bit more of that, you know, cynical, you know, ragged edge, a little bit more, you know, cocky and jaded and 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 all of that. You know, this this is not the film for you. You you have to have a little bit of that love of good old American pie, you know, and hot dogs and baseball or whatever. You know, that 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 traditional um, ethos is and it's going to look and feel different to, to everybody i guess i was raised on this type of stuff and so there is a fondness for uh again you know that word of fondness but for for these good old stories as long as they don't bury you in the syrup and the and the uh, and the the false righteousness i think that's the other thing too this isn't uh, this isn't a hymn to manifest destiny. I mean, you could say it sidesteps a lot of the issues as far as race or Native Americans or other more, you know, troubling and tragic aspects of American history. Uh, you know, he's not really looking to drudge up the, the controversies or what made Lincoln a divisive political character. Uh, he's looking for the heart and the soul of a man and of a society uh, because... You know, we we do need those role models, and 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 we we are better off having these uh, you know people who, who whose virtue is 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 sincere and people oriented, not posturing. Uh, I I think that's that's the the genuineness and the value I, I take from the the narrative here. In terms of the treatment of uh, race in the film, Joseph McBride talks about this a bit in the commentary track. Um, how apparently at the time, either you know officially or unofficially you just couldn't show a black person getting lynched and so there are a lot of films about white people getting lynched as kind of a stand-in to get people thinking about it more generally and uh ford's treatment of the lynching uh sequence later in the film uh i think uh would put in mind for a lot of people at the time you know the lynchings that were going on around the country and which i believe even then were being reported in the news uh, but oh, sure, did, and the guys carrying the torches and the crowds you know, mobbing right. at the courthouse door and all that. But right. he does still manage to sneak in. Uh, I mean, there's servant characters, of course. It's very sidelined. Um, but there's there's nods to a larger uh, economic ecosystem that Lincoln would eventually overthrow um, that wouldn't have been the focus of his career at that point, but which are still there on the background. I, I think kind of the weakest parts of the film are when it nods too far into Lincoln's eventual uh, destiny. Um, especially his, I feel like some of his interactions with Stephen Douglas are, are a bit like, I'll get you next time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, so I, 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 I'm glad the film doesn't have a scene where, you know, there's some black character who's, you know, prenaturally uh, reverent of Lincoln before he's ever done a, a damn thing. Um, but <laughs> right, at the same right. time, I, I know oh, yeah. what you mean that the, the film is certainly, uh, for, I think more worse than better, uh, unconcerned with, uh, the larger suffering that would have been going on at all sides. But I think yeah. you're, the, there's a great point that I'd never really put together 
this is like Atticus Finch before Atticus Finch. I mean, and and I I know that mm-hmm. that was not written by this time, but I do think that the the ties with society in the 1930s and and you know with with the race relations really does play a role in 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 how we see this courtroom drama playing out and the the murder and the lynching. Uh, but maybe maybe it's because I've seen and read To Kill a Mockingbird that I see that. I don't I guess I don't know how it would be at the time in 1939, but certainly I see the connections now. <laughs> yeah, you wonder if Harper Lee saw this movie and took a little inspiration from it. <laughs> Who knows. Um but yeah, I, I also want to kind of get into some of the other formative stuff. What, what do you think about the Anne Rutledge scenes? This is Lincoln's kind of first love, uh, uh, and kind of in in a kind of strange way, uh, her her early uh, premature death and the heartbreak associated with that, you know, kind of steered his path into the law. You know, it's interesting because they it's a very brief scene and very. Um, it really, you could have almost excised it from the main thrust of the film and maybe not even missed it. But, you know, my wife and I, when we watched it the other night, you know, she made a comment. It's like, oh, it's just so sad that she died so young. And, you know, and it struck me that even though the film didn't really uh, press that point or extrapolate on it in all much detail, that's part of the Lincoln mythology as well, is that, you know, his early heartache and then his later uh marriage uh you know much more unhappy much more difficult marriage kind of makes him a bit of a suffering martyr not only because of his eventual assassination but just you know the hardship that he had to deal with on a personal level uh, as well as of course the incredible burden of of leadership that the civil war thrust him into after he'd been elected as president in 1860 uh what did you guys how much of that pre-existing lincoln mythology were you guys aware of and how does that maybe serve as a necessary background to maybe fully appreciate this film if you didn't really know much about Lincoln or if you weren't really raised studying his life or with all the sort of folklore about Lincoln would you have the same regard for this movie I'm just kind of wondering what you guys think about that I mean, I can speak as someone who didn't uh, have much knowledge going in, especially the first time I saw it. But the second time, I think I'd even already seen uh, Spielberg's Lincoln, which I, I think casts him in a much more uh, melancholic and kind of suffering light. Sure. You get a more of a sense in Dana Day-Lewis's performance of all the suffering he'd been through, um, which included, you know, the death of several family members when he was younger, um, obviously the mm-hmm. death of Anne, um, and I think some other tragedies that I can't recall offhand. Um, but I think it's an important plot point in that way to kind of give a nod to the suffering in his background and his personal life that he apparently didn't talk about much, but kind of haunted him. Um, and I also just think they're very lovely scenes. I mean, this, him reading by the river is to me, the film's height of beauty. It's so pleasurable to watch. And then to go, I think immediately from that to the scene of him visiting Anne's grave is incredibly striking and very sad. And then his kind of determination to go to the law from there, you know, just the one line kind of as the scene even fades out of him just saying, well, I wonder if I gave that stick a, a little nudge your way. It's yeah. it's so, the, he imbues so much, Fonda imbues so much sadness into it and so much longing and uh, just a tinge of hope to get into the next step i mean they're two just such lovely scenes that even if they could be excised because they're not strictly necessary i still think yeah like i said on a character basis they serve so much in terms of the writing of it but especially in terms of the performance they're just so well done i I wouldn't want to lose them for anything yeah i wouldn't want to lose them either and i like how in all uh, almost all of those early scenes there's the river running in the background and i've always seen that river as kind of the push of time and destiny um, but it, it also shows some of the depth and serenity serenity that Lincoln uh, I think uh, represents to many of us and just this this idea of, of things running forward and and that's going on right back there while he's talking with Anne um, and they're kind of wandering back and forth he's sitting there watching the river when he goes to a gravesite in the winter, it, the river's running behind him. Um, it's it's an interesting uh, bit of filmmaking that I think really adds to the film. Now, but David, to answer your other question about Lincoln, I mean, I, I 
I read your your post on or one I think I read two of your posts on on the film and you did question in in that you know for people under 40 do they still get this kind of education and I certainly don't know but I am under 40 and I think we did hit it pretty hard when I was a kid in grade school you know I can mm-hmm. still remember the old uh uh, heaters the gas heaters in february going over in the corner and you know uh, none of this none of this electricity and you know, electrical heating or anything um read by firelight and all that right. kind of thing. um and and so i did grow up really admiring lincoln and looking into him quite a bit and some of that was just independent uh, care um i i do you know i i, I loved uh, everything that i could get my hands on with him because he is to me such a complicated figure and there's so much tragedy and there there but he speaks so well to these forces in his life and to the fears that he had and the existential crises that he had throughout his life both as a youth with people dying around him as someone who was struggling through through building up a career and then with someone with more ideals and then being someone who watches the absolute devastation of your nation and wondering what have I done? You know, what what is what is going on here? And without the benefit of hindsight or, or foresight, knowing what is going to happen with all of that, you know, I think I, I'm attracted to his writings, and so I, I would hate to lose the Anne Rutledge scenes because, uh, you know, she's bigger than life too now in a way. If you if you mm-hmm. if you know the Lincoln mythology, she's she's one of these mythological figures. Um, she's like Helen of Troy or something. You know, it's just a part of the right. story of who this man is and what he's come to represent for a nation that's tried to rebuild and, and tried to, to hold on to some of these values sometimes with, uh, you know, self delusion, of course, but that is, has tried to point to these things in our, and our, our, at our best times and with our best people, we really are holding on to these things. And there is a sense of, of the tragedy that must, must be part of that in those scenes. Yeah, yeah, you, I agree. You guys really reinforce the point very well that even though they're they're very you know kind of low key bits in a way, uh, they are central, and you can't really tell the story of young Mister Lincoln without at least referencing them. Before we move on to other things, I do want to throw a little anecdote. Um, you know, I've mentioned on a few other places I had a chance to tour the Criterion offices when I was in New York City. Uh, very thankful to Ryan Gallagher for pulling a few strings behind the scenes there to give me a chance to talk to Peter Becker and give the tour of the uh, operation there. And one of the really unique moments was when I got to see that scene, the Ann Rutledge uh, graveside scene of, of young Mr. Lincoln, uh, Henry Fonda there. I saw those scenes in restoration, so I knew that this uh, upgrade was on its way uh, back in August, but it was just kind of a cool moment to see uh, the technician, a young woman, I don't know her name, but she was doing all the digital cleanups, and it was just kind of a nice moment to sort of have that cell kind of burn into my memory as far as uh, kind of seeing the work in progress there. So I just wanted to kind of mention that as a as a unique highlight, maybe one of the things that bonded me to this film, just a little bit extra. Huh, that's great. That, that's probably about when you said you wanted to do the film. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> well, pick I, up on sure the it hint, had been though. <laughs> form, it hadn't been formally announced back in August there, but it did come up, and I thought, well, you know, this is a pretty good good topic for February with President's Day coming up. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a film that is, you know, it's it's maybe not the hippest, artsiest, edgiest movie uh, of recent uh, vintage at Criterion, but it's one I really do uh, respect quite a bit. Uh, it's, it's nice to take a, take a little bit of a look at that. Uh, but pretty much after we get to past that scene, we got the nice little uh, kind of county fair and the parade and, and all the, you know, kind of the, the humor and pomp of... Uh, of uh, you know, small town life. Uh, and I, I just enjoyed the, uh, you know, the veterans of the wars, the, this little parade scene that John Ford puts together. And I definitely your, your comments, Scott, about the visual poetry and the Americana, uh, really some of those are some of the, my favorite moments in the film as well, just because the, the scene is just so well realized. It really does feel like, uh, you know, a, a nostalgic, uh, you know, uh, throwback memory of life on, you know, the small prairie towns back in the good old days, uh, but it, it makes it a very attractive environment, very full of fun and games, and and uh, you know a little bit of some mischief here and there. And there, of course, there's some some plot development going on as uh, you know as the characters are kind of 
demonstrating some of their uh, scoundrelish ways. Uh, the names escape me at the very moment here, but you, know, you get to meet kind of the, the heavies, the villains of the film, as they're kind of harassing some of the the the, the nice virtuous young ladies of the town. I do want to. Uh, any, sorry, I do want to make a note about the that parade sequence. John Ford really liked uh, very old veterans. <laughs> there are a lot of films in which uh, he'll feature, you know, the last survivors of the Revolutionary War in this case, or the last survivors of the Civil yeah. War. Uh, and 1812 yeah I, yeah the nearness of history i think was something he had on his mind a lot that these things that become kind of mythic are not as far back as we might uh tend to imagine they are i mean ford himself uh knew wyatt earp in, in the silent area of hollywood because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. as wyatt uh i think it was Wyatt Earp, like just came to hollywood like as an advisor and you think about i mean it makes sense when you think about it, but John Ford, his career doesn't seem that long ago to us today, but he knew somebody in the old West who seems completely mythic and foreign to us. Uh, so I think he had a real direct experience with that sort of uh, connection. Now, just out of curiosity, did it, I didn't listen to the commentary, but did John Ford by any chance actually cast veterans in some of these things? I remember when in Speedy, the Harold Lloyd film in the 20s, um, I think he really did use veterans of the Civil War in in some of those scenes, and you know they were they played veterans of the Civil War in Speedy, and I, obviously I think that there was a little bit too much too much time had passed by the time 1939 rolled around for Civil War veterans. But did they? Do you know if if he tried to do that, or are these just extras and? Uh, I have no idea. I mean, I know one of the guys is played by his brother, uh, Francis Ford, um, the guy who kind of comes back into the courtroom later as uh, the drunk and uh, kind of frequent disruptor of the jury. Oh, yeah. um, Who's one of the film's best characters. Um, But other than that, I don't know what the cast is comprised of. Probably not. I mean, I I can't think of of a a war that would have that many veterans. I mean, obviously, World War One isn't that old. um, So I... Anyway, probably not. Just uh, just curious, and I don't want people to think that we said it here, that that's what it is. So, <laughs> An interesting conjecture there. Uh, we got the little tug-of-war scene. That's just kind of a classic little gag. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It, just, you know, it certainly shows that Lincoln isn't above a, a little bit of strategic cheating if he's got to <laughs> kind of get one over on the, on the other side there as he hitches the, the rope to the wagon and sends the other side <laughs> sprawling in the mud uh, which is a nice a call ring. to the uh, jack cass moment too <laughs> oh, you know lincoln yes. isn't above these uh these little jabs and uh, you know oh, yeah. the no, cheating he... but also just the you know I, I don't know what you'd call that but uh... <laughs> he's wily i mean yeah. he, he knows how to you know seize the moment and get his digs in there he's not He's not, you know, goody two shoes by any means. Uh, we got this little ballroom scene. I guess that's just a, I don't know if it's just more of the mythology, if it's a chance for, <laughs> uh, get a little music, a little entertainment in there. I guess there is a little bit of a variety show going on in some of those portions there. But uh, soon enough, I guess we, yeah, I don't know if people want to, you know, pick some of that those scenes apart there. Uh, I guess he's, as he's getting into uh, his his uh, relationship with Mary Todd, his, his eventual wife. I guess there is some of that foreshadowing you've got to bring the Stephen Douglases and the Mary Todds into the story there. But they really do become very incidental once the main action kind of kicks in, which is a, uh, you know, his his kind of first big gig as a as a trial lawyer that kind of gets him going as uh, not just an attorney, a practitioner of the law, but as somebody who can sort of stand up and, and defend the little guy and, and protect the innocent and figure out, you know, who the culprits are who really did the dirty deed. Uh, and I guess, you know, this is a story that could have been played out with other characters. It didn't have to be about a Lincoln story, but they had to find a way to illustrate this man's character without getting too heavy-handed with the foreshadowing of war and, and all of that. Um, I don't know, they may want to kind of get into some of the elements of this whole little narrative that uh, stood out to them? Well, it is based on a real trial that Lincoln did, in, okay. but it was much later in his life. It was, he, was, he was about, I think it was 1858, so a couple of years before he became president. He did represent a defendant who was accused of murder, 
and he did it for free. You know, he he was like he was established, and he was doing it kind of for it was one of his friend's sons, and so he said, "Well, I'll come over and and help you out," and. It doesn't play out like this one does with him, you know, Perry Mason all over the place and getting, the you know, figuring out who did it. And, you know, the 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 courtroom rules just going AWOL because, you know, there, <laughs> there is no such thing. <laughs> we'll get him convicted and, on, and already sent to the executioner in this trial. Um, but the way he did acquit... The other one was the was similar to this one. He did have a witness who said that he saw the the murder by moonlight, and then he used an almanac to say there was no moon that night. So that couldn't have been the case, and that you know in that case he just got acquitted because the jury couldn't find the proof that he was guilty. They, there was nothing there because um, right. there's no witness. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. this one goes a different route, but I, I thought that was interesting. They do it's called the almanac trial, and. You know, it, it's not a big, big moment or anything like that. But I thought it was interesting how they played with that loosely to create a, a, a pretty compelling dr- a drama, you know, with, with defendants that are better than any two boys ought to be <laughs> in the frontier. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very kind of uh, stark, uh, you know, contrast between the you know the the almost mustache twirling bad guys and you know the villains uh and this really you know pure as the driven snow you know a pioneer family two brothers one of them got a wife and a baby and the other one's just a strapping young man with all his future ahead of him just wanting to enjoy the the fourth of july celebration exactly and then some big old buffoon wants to come around and, and give him a hard time and before you know it, there's a gun drawn, shots fired, and all of a sudden a man is stabbed through the heart, and uh, you know, we got we got a pretty terrible situation on our hands. And uh, who's gonna who's gonna let justice prevail? Well, there's the opportunity for young Mister Lincoln to show that he's made uh, made us stronger stuff. He's uh, from a, from a cut above and ready to rise to the occasion. So, so you know, what do you think about his interactions with this uh, with this young family? Again, he's got to win their trust. There's also the character of the mother. She seems to be a bit of a widow there. I mean, I guess she obviously must be. Uh, but there's a vulnerability here. He's a protector of the of the uh, defenseless, and uh, you know, he's he's winning the trust. He's uh, trying to you know show this family that he's got their best interest at heart even though you know mob justice is pretty thirsty for some some blood and some vengeance uh it does seem a little incongruous why they would be so set against uh you know this these nice young men uh they don't seem particularly you know unlikable um and you know sometimes you do wonder you know what prompted the crowd to get so so quickly you know lusting for for blood and vengeance but uh yeah yeah Yeah, because for sure some of these people know the man who was killed and know his propensity to you know (laughs) fiddle with other men's wives things like that Mm -hmm. um -hmm. and yeah i i agree with you there i mean that to me is is a fine element of the film it doesn't bother me but it's certainly something that that I don't think is a film strength uh, how how good yeah. they are. If you think how, too much about it, it might yeah. kind of they are strain credibility a bit. They're too good, and his relationship with them is you know they they, they look up to him like he's well he is a savior to them in a way. But mm-hmm. even before all of that, I mean, just the he communes with them, you know, wins even the young girls' trust because he he wants them to cook the the turnips for him or I can't report it was turnip greens. You know, he, it's right. just, it, it is, it's, it's when it kind of veers toward the schmaltzy again, but I don't think it gets there for me. I I'm f- totally fine with it by this point, because I don't think Ford is cares about that. I think he's just presenting that all of that. And really it's still just a, a method to frame Abraham Lincoln as as a figure amongst the people and yeah and it's these character moments it's him sitting on the porch of this beautiful old cabin kind of reading the boy's letter and and the women kind of you know gazing at him admiring admiringly but also with this wistful you know sense of dread i mean what if the jury just doesn't you know believe our boys and and of course mother the mother having to harbor this this dreadful 
secret, this uncertainty. I mean, she thinks of herself as a witness, but as it turns out, she doesn't really know, but the fate of her boys is in her hands, and there's this incredible pressure upon her to almost choose which one is going to face the gallows and which one's going to walk away scot-free, and she just, it's, it's a terrible thing. I mean, again, it's another subtle evocation of the civil war you know brother against brother and families divided against themselves and and how do you make this dreadful choice between you know two sons that you love equally and it's just it's just inhuman and unbearable to have to you know be forced into that into that kind of life or death decision uh, when it cuts so close to the heart there. So, yeah, the, these moments here are, are just all examples of Lincoln's character. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the the jailhouse scene where he kind of, you know, forces his way to the front of the mob and, you know, kicks the battering ram with his foot and kind of gives gives him a story, a little a little off-the-cuff sermonette there. Uh, how about your responses to that that whole kind of defining moment i mean as you said earlier i think it kind of nods towards eventually uh to kill a mockingbird and it's just a great way to set up a character as kind of the town's moral conscience um and the way he kind of uh gets away with it with humor and uh with a bit of insight and just saying enough to get the crowd more at ease than uh trying to convince right. them that he's right or anything um, you know, you just have to. Yeah, he'll sh- he'll flash the anger. He'll raise his voice. He'll 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 man up and you know tell him to sit down and shut up and listen. But then, right, he wins them over. He doesn't berate them. Right. Yeah, he finds a way to to win them over to his side of uh, his way of seeing things. And I mean, any time in a movie, you can get a character yelling at at a bunch of violent mob people. That's a good way to get an audience on your side because we all we all agree, violent mobs uh oh, yeah. not great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Right. Now you uh, want you want to so, think of an example where violent mobs are great. Okay, well, I'm not saying violent <laughs> mobs don't have their revolutionary uh, purpose, but uh, you know. no, no. I, like I say, I was just sitting here thinking, oh, I wonder if I can come up with a counterexample. I'm not going to. I just uh, just thought. Huh, well, I'm 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 not uh, not in favor of the French Revolution. I guess I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, we can parse this different ways. It is all about perspective and. And shaping the audience's response there, um, but yeah, maybe, maybe we can go ahead and turn our attention to the to the the courtroom scenes then. So, Trevor, you're a resident attorney. Uh, uh, what do you think of uh, Lincoln's jurisprudence, or what do you think about the judge? <laughs> <laughs> he, he's he's kind of a goof himself. Yeah. I, I it makes me really want to go back and see if courtrooms were really ran in any kind of way like this because, I mean, Lincoln yeah, yeah. is is talking while the other attorney is, you know, the prosecutor is doing his own cross-examinations. He's wandering around the courtroom. In one spot, he's over reading a book sitting on a rail while the trial is going on. It's so interesting to me. And again, I can't think that Ford is like, well, I'm going to try to make this just how it was. And yet this isn't the way to try to just make a courtroom exciting so it really makes me stop and say, what is he doing with Lincoln here? You know, what is he trying to convey about this character again, building him up and and helping us see him as as somewhat aloof in a way, and, and yet totally in control of everything. But yeah, the, the courtroom scenes are hilariously, you know, not the way that they should be ran. Um, right. you, you just can't do things that way. This isn't anatomy of a murder or anything where they tried to get it right. Um, they just didn't. They disregarded it all. But it really, they are fun. I have a lot of fun watching them because you get Lincoln calling someone a jackass. You know, you get a judge who gets the joke five minutes later and yells it out oh, and, and makes the everyone so laugh funny, again. Right. You know, I mean, right. you can't do that to a witness. That has nothing to do with the the, the case. And right. but it, it it is funny, and I really like his kind of needling and and searching for a way confident that he's going to get there but i don't you know he can't know yet how this is going to turn out and you've got his kind of ah shucks mentality with the prosecutor's overblown boring 
Um, you know, they even show the uh, people sleeping. It might even be the judge snoring. I can't remember. Um, oh, while yeah, he's yeah. talking to the jury and trying to build them up as, you know, you stalwart members of, of America, we will do this right. And I have confidence in you. And, you know, we are here to, to make sure justice is all that kind of overblown speaking. And then you've got someone who is funny and down to earth and irreverent um, through, through the whole trial and who at the end turns out to have all the right cards in his pocket, you know, and, and just kind of plays as if he knew that all along. I, I, I enjoy it a lot. It, and you don't have to be a, an attorney to, to I think, know that that's not how it would play out. And you, you certainly right. don't, you you know, as an attorney, I don't have to, to nitpick and care about that either. I, I just enjoy <laughs> it for what it is in the film. <laughs> it's, it's entertainment there, yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, I really... Go ahead. Sam. Oh yeah. Well, you invoking uh, Anatomy of Murder was interesting because I actually thought of uh, Fonda's manner in the courtroom is very similar to Jimmy Stewart's in that film. The way he will kind of be doing something else while the prosecution's rambling on. Like there's one part where he's just like looking at the books on the wall, um, just as a way of tipping back in his chair. Yeah, exactly. And it, it kind of I imagine focuses the jury's attention on him and off of whatever the prosecution might be saying. The same way that Jimmy Stewart was building those little. Uh, fishing traps uh, in Anatomy of Murder. Uh, the prosecutor is notably played by the same actor who played the kind of uh, fuddy-duddy uh, liquor salesman in Stagecoach. And I think mm-hmm. he must have played a lot of these types of characters, these kind of like very by-the-books, uh, kind of obnoxious, very uh, kind of mousy guys who... Yeah, fastidious, yeah. overblown, or, much the, much too absorbed of his own you know, strength and... and authority and all yeah that. who the audience is kind of automatically uh not in favor of especially as against someone as charismatic as uh, henry fonda well yeah his, his name is donald meek yeah great. <laughs> accurately so name or not, but, <laughs> but you know i mean he he's short he's bald he's kind of got a little bit of a toadyish manner and here's uh, young Mr. Lincoln, all slim and tall and clad in black and full head of hair. And <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's really not a very fair fight, to, to, to be honest. But it is pretty hilarious because, uh, yeah, Felder, the, the prosecutor's attorney's name is uh, Felder. He, he's, he's just, you know, you can sort of feel the heat rising up from under his collar <laughs> as he's trying to press his point home. And especially as he thinks victory is right in his grasp there. And uh, you know, with with one move after another, uh, young Mister Lincoln is just kind of pulling the legs out from underneath his argument. And yet, uh, and yet, and yet, you know, go ahead. he's upsetting the whole system. And maybe yeah, that's what exactly. Ford is going for here: is show how subversive Lincoln is. I mean, he's he's coming into something that has tradition and conventions, and just blowing him away. You know, just says this isn't how I'm going to play this game, and. And turns it around and kind of uh, you know it's it's very subversive. He's he's deliberately um, undercutting everything in a way that he knows is getting a reaction. Um, it's and it's not the way that I ever see Lincoln, you know, as a person in in my own mind. But I think it I think it works in the film. It's interesting that that uh, quality carries over also to Spielberg's Lincoln, which is obviously very influenced by John Ford. And I wonder if in some of the mm-hmm. writing as he was uh, helping put together that screenplay, he was influenced by that portrait of uh, a guy who was motivated by, you know, kind of a pure justness, but was willing to use some slightly underhanded tactics to get there. Yeah, yeah. He had that kind of wry you know, slightly cynical side. I mean, he, he knew how to work the system. He wanted to do it, you know, with a way that the, the, you know, the ends justify the means and he wasn't malicious or, you know, self-serving in any way. He had a principle, he had a sense of justice that he was looking to pursue here. And in this case, you know, I don't think, uh, Lincoln at all knew who the killer was up until, that final, you know, crucial giveaway there, but he did recognize that the state had a very, very weak case, uh, but they were still very zealously pursuing the death penalty, you know, which is, you know, just completely unrighteous. Well, you know, you're going to put these young men to death when you really don't have any evidence one way or the other. <laughs> That's an interesting thing in the movie too, is this idea that if we don't know who the murderer is, you're both going to die. 
That's just not how it works. <laughs> right. You know, it's either you tell me who the murderer is beyond a shadow of a doubt, or you don't kill anybody. You know, there's no execution. <laughs> but I, I do like that in this one. It's it, it it's just plays it for that great drama. Yep. Yep. So yeah, um, I don't know. I'm not sure how if we have to get into picking apart every single nuance of the film. Well, it's, it's very entertaining. It clips right along. Go ahead, take the next next swing. In. While we're kind of talking about um, Fonda's portrayal of Lincoln in this and the way he leans back on his chair and and just this nonchalant attitude, it certainly brings to mind uh, another collaboration between Fonda and John Ford when they did uh, My Darling Clementine. And oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and Fonda's playing Wyatt Earp in much cover the same pose way. There yeah. has the same thing: legs kicked up on the rail and everyone's back on his chair. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's stressed out about things, and he's tipping on the chair and putting one leg on the rail and then kicking it back before it falls, putting the other leg on. You know, just these games he's playing with himself to show, uh, and they're physical. And I can't quite put my put words to what I'm feeling with this way of playing with their body to separate themselves and and almost be be beyond the body in a way i can't i can't i'll have to think about that i'll, I'll try and articulate that some other time but um very much the same feel i get with wyatt Earp. well i think it, it conveys this kind of confidence it's kind of like i got this you know um i'm just kind of here biding my time waiting until the moment is right and then i'll strike with that little proverbial wisdom, that that word of of uh, insight that just kind of play lays it all out there loud and clear, and and let the let the truth be known. And and with uh, my darling Clementine, it's just firing those critical shots right at the moment, and he's not going to rush things along. It's uh, like a transcendence. Ready. Exactly. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like this Zen master, I guess, to yeah, put it in another yeah. context of kind of like when the moment is right, I will strike, and until then no sweat <laughs> well it's really what separates you know any other actor from a star in addition to perhaps their good looks and uh, clear speaking voices their ability to use their body in that kind of expressive way that you know doesn't necessarily relate any direct uh, emotional effect but has uh, some kind of resonance that, yeah you can't quite put your finger on it. you could try to pick apart but ultimately it doesn't have any explanation otherwise it couldn't be done in just a gesture, you know, they could be done in words, but there's all these things he's doing that uh, could only be done by the movement of his limbs or the way he cocks his head or however. Um, I, I think there's a, is a bit of character development in it, though, because as we said in that initial scene, he seems kind of ill at ease, not sure where to put his hands in that first speech. But by the time he gets to the courtroom, he, he knows how to channel all that into uh, sort of a posture that will gather people's attention or demand authority from a witness or... Uh, demand the attention of the jury if he's just shuffling around the room you know there's times where he just has a sit uh, and seems to be kind of contemplating but then speaks up very suddenly with exactly the right thing and slaps his knees <laughs> in his, as a way of uh putting a period on it yeah exactly the, the 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 wheels are grinding there he's thinking things over cocking a glance here and there the way he kind of positions his head strokes his chin stares off into space there's something deep and profound going on, and he probably can't even put it into words himself. But he he just knows when the moment is right, he'll he'll be ready. So, and yeah, sorry, yes. I, I've got one, sorry, David. I might have cut you off. Yes, fine. I, no, one no more thing while we're talking about uh, Fonda's physicality and the performance here, I thought they did a really interesting job with Lincoln's height because I don't imagine Fonda is really that tall, but. Maybe he is. I, I don't they, remember they thinking of him They surrounded him with as, short actors, yeah. But, <laughs> I don't know. but they do such yeah. a good job of making him tall and lanky and gradually getting control over his body um, through the film as, as, as a way of getting control of himself. And it's a very subtle thing. I don't think I've ever noticed it until this last viewing how often he's portrayed as very tall um, around, those, uh, around him. But it, it's not like, you know it doesn't look like Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings or something where it's just, it just is, he is a physical presence. And I, I don't know, the more, the more that I think about this movie and my reaction to it this time, the more I think of it just almost purely in visual terms, Lincoln, you know, in the settings that he's in and Lincoln's physical presence and his posture and all of that as well. Um, that's what this movie is to me. It's, it's just visual. I guess Scott, 
you said it at the beginning, visual poetry, uh, more than any of these story elements, yeah, which I, can all be picked apart. I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think all that kind of stuff is what makes it so resonant for me. Um, you know, I mean, Stagecoach is more exciting. I think uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is maybe a bit more thematically rich and obviously uh, plot-driven. And the same goes for Grapes of Wrath, for that matter. Uh, but there's just something about the simplicity of this that is really affecting. And, uh, yeah, resonant is really the the word I can come up with. Well, just for your information, Henry Fonda was six foot two. So yeah. I think it was probably Not a decent height on him, him head and shoulders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just make and the I think you see that in his little... kids, too. You know, yeah. yeah, Peter and Jane are both pretty tall and trim and, and all that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah true. Uh, nice little trivia bit there but but you're right i think and i I think that's what makes this film very rewatchable i mean stagecoach is a hoot and that's always good to put on and you know just kind of get out there on the the wide open spaces and you know riding for your life here but this this film is very to me i've probably seen it i don't know four or five times over the years uh, since i got the original criterion dvd and it's always good for a few laughs there's always nice little details that you if you knew, even if you've seen them before, they're just a, for a nice revisit. So I, I do feel like this, and it's it's not terribly long. I think an hour and forty minutes. Lots of colorful little anecdotes. Even worth kind of jumping forward to a couple scenes. I think the the courtroom scene is just one of my favorites, just because it's it's just such a a great series of performances by all the key players. Even even yeah, the the old drunk guy that you mentioned earlier, Scott, is just. <laughs> It's just kind of fun to trot them all out there and, and let the uh, let the thing go through its motions there, uh, just just to enjoy a few good laughs again. Um, let's see what there are some other features on the disc. I didn't really get a chance to dig into any of that. Scott, you said you had listened to most of the commentary. Uh, is this uh, one that ranks up there at all for you? Any other? Are there supplements and things that we want to just kind of talk about the the overall package here? That was the one I really uh, dove into because it's the one that's new to the new Blu-ray. And I guess they put out a new DVD too, but the, the, we all know where the money's at. Uh, it's all about the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new Blu-ray release has the commentary track that the initial DVD release did not. Uh, and as I, uh, for now anyway, have only rented the Blu-ray copy, I really wanted to pack in as much of that as I could. Uh, McBride has written... A couple of books about Ford and uh, spent a lot of time with Ford while he was still alive and with Henry Fonda and with you know a lot of his other collaborators and has a lot of great insights into uh, Ford's process and working method and the specific circumstances surrounding this film um, is really well worth a listen. I didn't you know pay very close attention or take any notes, but I tried to convey a couple of uh, anecdotes that he presents. But the rest, I definitely recommend people check out for themselves. Yeah, that kind of sailed past me that that was a new edition and definitely justifies the reissue as if it didn't. I mean, the the restoration is very nice, too. This is just another really uh, handsome, vintage Hollywood black and white classic. And a 4K restoration at that. I think it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah. Very, very crisp, clear image. I mean, it's a mono soundtrack. You're not going to get anything you know, too multi-sensory there, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great overall presentation of a, of a classic American film. I don't know what more you can ask for. (laughs) Well, and I guess my, my final thought is it's movies like this and then the grapes of wrath that make Henry Fonda so perfectly cast in once upon a time in the West, you know, so you've got this, this just American hero, everything good about him. And, you know, it, it just sets us up beautifully to have that uh, wonderful experience of seeing him play the villain in Once Upon a Time in the West. So, mm-hmm. thank, thank, you know, if, if for no other reason, and there are a lot of other reasons, I'm grateful for the film for, for that. <laughs> yeah, good. Scott, you got any final words on this one, or have we pretty well summed it up? Uh, pretty well summed it up. It's great. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, any final comments as far as things that we're up to? Any other uh, podcasts or other projects that you want to promote and inform viewers or listeners about or anything like that? Uh, I just read an article at Battleship Pretension about uh, Matter of Life and Death, which I saw in its new 4K restoration here in L.A. Uh, noticed some avenues that I didn't notice when I first saw it many, many years ago. Uh, and hmm. In addition to just appreciating the film's beauty much more, the 4K restoration is really lovely. And hopefully Criterion will be the ones to be putting that out and add to their oh, I, pal and Pressburger laurels. 
it, it seems like there would be no justice. I mean, if if uh, if they don't, I'm going to call young Mr. Lincoln to prosecute <laughs> this thing. I mean, I'm still waiting for I, Tales of Hoffman here in the States. I have my British yeah. Blu-ray, but, you know, I'd yeah. like one with more supplements on it. But hopefully they'll get Matter of Life and Death out. I think it was a Sony restoration, so it should be right in the mm-hmm. pipeline. It's pretty amazing you mentioned that because I just watched it on Filmstruck last night with me oh, and my nice. wife. We just decided to, we we got to get into this and and you you could definitely tell there's there's room for some improvement there. But it, what a what a wonderful, amazing movie that is. I I really do want to see it in the the best presentation because it's just such a a visual tour de force as well as a really amazing wonderful story. I mean, just really really in, incredibly creative. How uh, you know just how. Uh, fertile the imagination and technical skill of the archers was at, at this at this time yeah for sure really, really quite remarkable a- any other impressions of sundance i know you've done a bit of writing about that and all that but uh you know you had a pretty cool experience there it's been fun to support getting you out there and uh, any other takeaways from the festival to drop out real yeah quickly? i mean i definitely appreciate everyone who uh helped me out financially there it is an expensive endeavor even uh, i have a place to crash every year but you know just Getting there, getting around, getting food to eat, it's all, it all adds up. So every cent was very much appreciated and hope you guys, the listeners, and uh, any, any contributors who are currently on the cast you might have contributed uh, enjoy the Blu-rays that Ryan's sending. Um, other impressions? I don't know. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a strange festival. There's so many people there for so many different purposes. Uh, some people, it's just kind of a fun vacation. Some people are there to buy films or publicize them. Uh, and I'm kind of there just because I, I really want to see movies and it's all very communal and everyone just really wants to love the movies they're seeing and they love going to theaters to see them. And it's very it's very invigorating to start off the year that way, I think. Um, yeah, I'll be talking about it more uh, with Aaron actually on Criterion Now this weekend. Uh, so okay. that'll be okay. out. That's a nice little Yeah, in close there, conjunction okay. to this episode. Very cool. Well, we'll we'll get our editing shoes on and see who gets this one out there first, right? Well, Trevor, I see you and I got a little bit of business ahead of us, right? Yeah, that's right. A new Eclipse series. That's uh, <laughs> my copy is on the way. I know. I think you've had yours for a little while yet, so I'm I have. Start making, but I haven't watched any yet. <laughs> okay. Well, it's probably time to get to it. It is. I just finished. Just finished earlier this evening. Finishing my uh, last segment for the tenth episode of Criterion Reflections, where we're going to do a kind of an assortment of short films from 1969 and kind of wrap up my coverage of not only that year, but also the 1960s as a decade. So I'll have a little bit of a break until I start the 70s with Criterion Reflections, but the Eclipse Viewer uh, Redux is a part of my plans over the next few weeks, so we'll have to set up a time and you know, kick up the machine one more time. Yeah, I can't wait, David. I, I'm, I'm just glad it's back because I, I miss those Saturday mornings. Yeah chatting about films. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we got another one further down the road in a couple more months with the Ingrid Bergman set too. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll have to, you know, make this a regular thing. Pretty exciting. Anything else you've been up to that you want to talk about before we sign off? Uh, well, yeah, as far as Criterion stuff, I'll be getting things about the February releases. Um I I just got in the mail today an actor's revenge, the hero, and uh, beautifully, the Night of the Living Dead. I I love that movie and can't wait to to go into those. And then I'll be doing a review of Tom Jones for the Criterion cast later on in the month. But one thing that I it isn't movie related, but that I do want to bring up, I have decided to start up my old uh, podcast on books again, and am doing a first episode. I'm kind of starting fresh and just back over. But I'll be doing uh, kind of, you know, it's almost inspired by the Eclipse series. I wanted to do podcasts that are dedicated to authors at particular points in their career or maybe themes at different times. But the first episode is going to be um, called Anita Bruckner's Start in Life. And the reason that I'm titling it that is that her first novel is called A Start in Life. And the other interesting thing is she she wrote it when she was um, in her in her mid-50s. So hardly the start of, of her life. And <laughs> okay. so I'm digging into into her and into her first four novels, which um, she wrote in four years and then ended up uh, kind of capping it off with uh, winning the Man Booker, or at the time it was the Booker Prize in 1984. And so I'm, I'm starting that back up and am done with the first episode other than production and kind of getting it edited and, and putting it all together. But that, that'll be going on over at my site uh, while we keep working on these movies over here. 
that's very cool. Now, you know, as a, somebody who I'll probably honestly say I may not read her books, um, maybe maybe you'll sell me on it and I'll make time for all that. But is this a podcast that you think you could listen to even if you don't get to the books he, themselves? That's and my just plan. Listen and learn. Yes, I want it to be. I mean, I, I don't plan on spoiling books and doing anything like that. It, I plan to make it a little bit more introductory for people to get to know a particular artist at a particular time and that may necessitate going into some details but for oh, the sure. most you want to tell enough yeah. to draw people know what they're getting into and all mm-hmm. that right? but for the most part i do want it to be an exploration of people and works that i value so that people because i don't i actually don't imagine a lot of people will have read her first four books um or, or and for many maybe not even know who she is uh but that's kind of the point is to to give some context and approach it in a way that that brings people to the work rather than just discuss the work as if people have already uh, heard all about it and know about it. So I will I will send you oh, cool. a, yeah. a preview uh, when I get it done, David, yeah. and you can tell me if it I'm, I'm very intrigued, you. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, no, I, I look forward to that. I've been kind of on a similar vein listening to Eric Devon's History of Jazz, which, you know, a lot of those names are completely new to me, and of course he does have the advantage of being able to play some little snippets of, of music to kind of give you a feel for what he's talking about, but very educational, very informative, and, and he boy, talk about going deep. He has taken his time. I'm like, when yeah. are you going to get to Miles Davis, man? You <laughs> 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 got a long way ahead of him. But anyways, just few few uh, non-criterion podcasts to, to shout out there. It's definitely nice to kind of mix the variety in there and broaden our horizons into other formats and other media, so. Well, guys, it's been great reconnecting with you. Um, I guess we'll be back in March with something. Not quite sure yet what it will be, but we're going to try to keep this Criterion uh, cast main episode a monthly thing for uh, as long as the uh, opportunities arise. So we'll be talking to you all soon, okay? Okay.